salvation. And Luke desires, of course, that we become much more better followers and disciples of our Lord Jesus Christ. So let's pray and we'll begin this morning. The Lord Jesus, you are our Lord, the eternal Son of God, our Savior, the one we adore and praise this morning, the one we come to learn more about from the Scriptures as they testify to your greatness and your glory. We ask this morning that you would start granting these prayerful purposes in the Gospel of Luke to our lives. This passage of Scripture would become more and more of who we are as living out our lives as your disciples. We pray that you would cause us to grow for your glory. Amen. So you can please turn in your Bibles to, uh, to Luke chapter 1, and uh, we'll consider the story of Jesus. Now, the story actually began, or begins here, with the announcement of the forerunner, John the Baptist. In the opening chapters of Luke's gospel, we're presented with these alternating scenes for four chapters, these scenes with John the Baptist and then the scenes with Jesus, then a scene with John the Baptist, then we go back to Jesus. And it alternates back and forth. There are many parallels between the two of them, and we'll point some of them out as we go along, of course. But God is at work in both John and Jesus as seen as the stories go back and forth. We see the role of the Holy Spirit. We see the role of angels. We see the role of the place of the temple. John and Jesus are both talked about as being from God and fulfilling Old Testament passages, and, and they play a unique role in the history of redemption. And of course, Jesus Christ is far superior as the Son of God. And there are many more parallels. But Luke is declaring that this time is the time in the history of redemption when Jesus, the Son of God and the Messiah, now transcends the old and brings in the new age of salvation. So this morning, as we look at Luke chapter 1 and the first half of it, our assurance and our conviction should grow as we simply make observations even about the history of redemption unfolding, God's plan unfolding. And the better the observer that we are, the more we will grow. Well, Luke begins his work by telling us his very purpose at the beginning and starting the story from the beginning, and we'll just read it today as we go along. But we learn that we need a couple things. Uh, in verses 1 through 4, we learn that we need a greater knowledge of the exact truth about the gospel. That's what we read about in the first four verses. And then the rest of the story about Zacharias this morning, we need to begin at the beginning, really, of the story. And the beginning of the story is John the Baptist. So you've been supplied with an introduction that I wrote for you to Luke's gospel. Uh, you can read that at home. Don't read it now. Um, but you'll want to probably take a look at it this week to get yourself prepared more for what we'll be studying in the gospel of Luke together. There's a lot of helpful detail in there for you, I would think and some key themes are identified for you. So you know what to look for uh, as we're reading along and studying uh, the book together. Well, perhaps the key passage in the whole gospel according to Luke is the story of Zacchaeus, right dead center in the book, Luke chapter 19, verse 10, and we read the famous statement, the Son of Man has come and to seek and to save that which was lost. Of course, Luke has many purposes in writing this gospel account, some of it is evangelistic, some of it is instructional, some of it is apologetic, and the list goes on. But ultimately, in conjunction with his second volume that he wrote, the book of Acts, he's commending the preaching of the gospel to the whole world. 
It's obviously of great interest to us at Calvary. We want to see Jesus, his saving purposes, proclaimed throughout the ends of the earth, and we want to be a part of it. And so let's start with the announcement of the birth of John the Baptist, and may our assurance and our conviction grow as we begin to observe the plan of God unfolding at the perfect time, the fullness of times. And so first off, we realize that we need a greater knowledge of the exact truth of the gospel. And Luke begins his account with these words. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So Luke's opening sentence here, actually it's one huge sentence in classical, and it's very much classical Greek style. Uh, it's not repeated, uh, the style throughout the rest of the gospel. So it's a very, very formal introduction uh, to the gospel of Luke that he's writing, and it explains his purpose in writing it. And he's justifying his purposes by what he writes here. So in verses 1 to 2, he's telling us, the reader, about what's already happened already, what's been done in, in this retelling. And then in verses 3 to 4, what for the contribution he plans to make in writing his gospel. And so we read right at the beginning that apparently many have undertaken this task of compiling a gospel account. There's been much interest, as you could imagine, in the life and the teachings of Jesus Christ and God's work in him. And perhaps Luke is referring to Mark's gospel, or maybe some other sources that you'll notice there's a lot in common between Luke and Mark, or Luke and Matthew, rather. And then, of course, he would have his own interviews that he would conduct and research that he was doing. But these accounts, notice, are, are your version says accomplished. It's a better translation is these things have been fulfilled, because this will become a very important word in the gospel of Luke. But things have been accomplished, the meaning is not just that, oh, there's a bunch of events that happened, or that these are true events and we should believe in them, but it's that these events have fulfilled history. They've fulfilled prophecy. They're speaking about the coming of the Messiah. God's purposes have finally been fulfilled, and all these Old Testament prophecies find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ, and now is the day of redemption. And so that's why the title of our series in the Gospel of Luke is Salvation now for all the world. And that's what Luke is impressing upon us. Those making such accounts, whether, whether those accounts were oral or written transmission, have done so according to the tradition faithfully handed down from the earliest eyewitnesses and the ministers of the word or ministers of the gospel. And this is commonly understood to refer to the 12. Later on in Peter's preaching in Caesarea, this is how he describes this, Acts 10. And we are witnesses of all the things he did, speaking of Jesus, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. And they also put him to death by hanging him on a cross. God raised him up on the third day and granted that he should become visible, not to all the people, but to the witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God, that is, to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And he ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. Of him, all the prophets bear witness 
that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. You see, Luke in the beginning here is affirming the historical trustworthiness of what he's about to write. And this whole process of the gospel, tra- gospel tradition and its inscripturation for us here in the Holy Bible. Now what for the contributions is he going to make? We read then in verses 3 to 4, Luke has also been closely following events from the beginning. He's been carefully investigating everything, written and orally transmitted concerning Jesus Christ. He was a travel companion of the Apostle Paul, and perhaps he did a lot of writing and research when he was in Caesarea about A.D. 60. And he he too desires to write an orderly account, not slavishly chronological, but an orderly account and perhaps his being the most comprehensive of all. He would have two volumes. Luke-Acts is really can be seen as one book, and he covers everything from John the Baptist to Paul's imprisonment. He dedicates the gospel account and the book of Acts to a man named Theophilus, the most excellent Theophilus. That's his Roman title of importance. And likely, Theophilus is a believing patron who would make sure that this work got published. I mean, even thinking about something like that gives us opportunity to praise God that he would see to it that his scripture would be available for his people. Luke immediately, there's immediately stated purpose here right away is for our assurance in the truth that's already been taught about the fulfillment of the redemptive plan of God in Christ Jesus. Perhaps there were some already some challenges circulating at the time regarding the facts of Jesus' life and the meaning of them. Maybe, for example, people were already questioning the resurrection from the dead. Perhaps there were also growing concerns regarding suffering and persecution for believing in this gospel. I mean, is it really worth it? Uh, Perhaps there's a question that needs to be answered, maybe a question that's even in your mind this morning. Is Christianity really the true religion from God? Well, Luke wrote for Theophilus. He wrote for the church. He wrote for us because we need a greater knowledge of the exact truth of the gospel. Every single one of us here, none of us are exempt. And Luke believes that a simple presentation of the gospel facts is going to bring assurance to Christians and it's going to bring greater conviction into our lives about the truth of what we read. Do you believe this? I hope you do. It's no coincidence that you're here to listen to Luke's account of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so this morning, it's my prayer and hope that our insurance and our conviction will grow as we make some observations about the unfolding of God's plan of salvation. And we're going to start at the beginning. That is with John the Baptist. Well, John is the final prophet from the Old Testament period. He's the forerunner of the Messiah. He's the first proclaimer of the kingdom. And the story that follows on one level is a story of God's personal care for a godly couple, Zechariah and Elizabeth. But it's also a story about the renewal of God's plan of redemption. Not that the plan was abandoned, but that now is the time for its active fulfillment in the fullness of times. According to Luke, The story of Jesus really does need to begin with the story of John the Baptist. It's here in this amazing story of Zechariah and Elizabeth that God dramatically introduces the coming of his Messiah. 
And so we will read that the situation here is toward the, it's toward the end of King Herod's reign. He, he, he reigned from 37 to 4 B.C. And we're introduced to this couple, Zacharias and Elizabeth. Now, just to clear up some confusion, your version may say Zechariah. Zacharias is just the Greek version of that name. So it's the same person. Okay? So we read then in verses 5 through 7. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. So Zacharias, here's a priest, and Elizabeth is from the daughters of Aaron. They're both righteous in the sight of God. They're blameless in their walk. That doesn't mean they're perfect people. It means that their spirituality is visible, faithful, consistent. They were an exemplary couple with a strong and respectable heritage. They were really living godly lives. In fact, they're people we would all like to be someday. They're model believers. But they were childless. They always have been. They're beyond, of course, the age of childbearing at this point. And normally one might think that this is a judgment from God, but obviously not in their case because we're told right away that they're blameless and righteous people. And so, it's just a side note, we need to be, take very careful about interpreting circumstances in our lives because God deals so mysteriously in our lives. In fact, this week I overheard a conversation at my gym where one lady was expressing to another woman, you know, God must really hate me because... And then she listed things that happened in her life. And people say things like that, or God must really love me because all these things are going well for me. So, but God doesn't work so simplistically. He works mysteriously, and we need to be careful in how we assess our own lives and other people's lives based on circumstances. Now, for those of us familiar with the Bible and some of the other stories in this Bible, we sense we're getting set up for something right here. And they were childless. Uh, we've heard the story before many times. We're already thinking about the story of Abraham and Sarah and the birth of Isaac. We're already thinking about the story of Manoah and his wife and the birth of Samson. We're already thinking about Elkanah and Hannah and the birth of Samuel. And our expectations are raised as we read through the gospel. Look, well, what's God going to do this time? And especially as it happened with Abraham and Sarah and the birth of Isaac, we might be expecting a miracle to take place signifying a new stage in the history of redemption. Well, let's see. In verses 8 through 23, we read, Now while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was trembled when he saw him, and he fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready 
for the Lord, a people prepared. We'll stop there. Well, it was a normal day at the temple in Jerusalem for most people, but it was a very special day for Zechariah. There were about 18,000 active priests at the time. That's way too many priests for everyone to get a chance to serve inside the temple. And so it was, they were divided up into 24 divisions, and each division would serve twice a year for a week. And it was time for the division of Abijah. And Zechariah was chosen, as was the custom at the time, to be by lot to be the priest who got to offer incense in conjunction with the sacrifice. So, I mean, think about all this. I mean, literally, this is like a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for him. All the particularly religious people, they were attending the evening sacrifice in the late afternoon, and, and they were there. And while Zechariah went into the temple to offer incense, they prayed. Everyone was praying. Among other things, for the long-promised redemption of Israel, including the priests, they were all praying. And while in the temple, an angel of the Lord appears to the right of the altar of incense, of course, the presence of the angel strikes fear in Zechariah and wonder at what God is about to do. And it's really significant that this takes place, as we'll see as we go through the Gospel of Luke, it'll become more and more evident, but it's significant that it takes place in the temple holy place because the Messiah would be the very temple of God and he would forever change worship and he would forever change who is a member of the people of God. The message of the angel begins with the standard fear not. That's what angels usually say as we read in the Bible. And then he told him that his petition had been heard and his wife would bear a son and he's supposed to give him the name John. But if you think about that for a minute, what exactly was Zacharias' prayer request? We wonder because, you know, it's not likely that this prayer referred to is a recent prayer for a baby. I mean, he and Elizabeth are old now, and they would have stopped praying that prayer by now. I mean, in verse 18, we realize he doesn't believe it anyway. So, and their character, as is described above, they probably readily accepted God's will for their life, and, and they served him with all the strength that they had in their situation, not being wrapped up and constantly wondering, well, you know, my life would be so much better if I only had a child. They're beyond that. It's more likely, perhaps, that this is a reference to a long past heart-wrenching prayers for a child and wanting a son. So then you think about, well, what odd timing on God's part. I mean, like, why now? They're content with their life. Why does God have to break in and disrupt everything? It's most likely an answer to even larger prayers that they've been praying along with everyone else for the time of the Messiah. And as we're going to see, for the purposes of God's glory and His grace, these two prayer requests actually fit together quite well. The timing of God is perfect for His glory to bless this couple and their joy and to bring in the age of the Messiah. It was every Jewish woman's hope to be the one who would give birth to the Messiah at the time. Elizabeth wouldn't bear him, but would have the next best baby boy, the forerunner to the Messiah. His name's John. God chose the name because of what he's going to do with the man. In fact, all children belong to God anyway. They're all his children. And this unusual birth, this unusual naming reinforces that God is going to do something with this child. And his name John simply means Yahweh will be gracious. As a result of John's birth, Zechariah is going to be filled with joy, it says. 
and gladness, obviously, but it would be a rejoicing that spreads to other people, not just for them. This strange happening, accompanied with the testimony to follow, is going to spread anticipation among all the people wondering about the coming of the redemption of Israel. John would be great in the sight of the Lord. It says, this will point to the greater greatness of Jesus, to whom John will even give over his disciples to Jesus. And John will say, I must decrease and he must increase. John will be set apart here by having no wine or liquor. This is another link to the stories of Samuel and Samson. But it may not be a full Nazarite vow, which you can read about in Numbers chapter 6 if you're interested. But his radical lifestyle is going to mirror his radical message. We know that very well. In fact, we'll get to read about John's revival later on in Luke. John would also be filled with the Holy Spirit. The meaning here is either from the womb or from birth. It's an unusual filling because it's a permanent one. It goes beyond what was experienced in the Old Covenant, and it anticipates more on what's in line with the New Covenant. He'll be a prophet from God, even from birth. And yet Jesus, the Word, is from eternity and will be even more full of the Spirit. In fact, our Lord Jesus Christ praised John and said this in Luke chapter 7, But what did you go out to see, talking to the people, a prophet? Yeah, I say to you, and one who is more than a prophet, this is the one about whom it is written, and he quotes Malachi chapter 3, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before, my way, your way before you. I say to you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John, yet he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Well, John's prophetic ministry, and really redemptive ministry, would turn many in Israel back to God in repentance. He would go as a forerunner before him, before the Lord. And of course, we know specifically this is going to mean before Jesus Christ. His ministry will be in the spirit and power of Elijah, a great prophet of God who led a national revival as well. And you can read about that revival in 1 Kings chapter 7, or 1 Kings. I don't know what chapter, I didn't write it down. But you can read about Elijah's revival in 1 Kings. He would do the teaching work of a true priest, this John the Baptist. According to Malachi again, Luke is taking us to this passage a lot, to this book. Malachi chapter 2, verse 6 says, True instruction was in his mouth, and unrighteousness was not found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness and turned many back from iniquity. In fact, the quotation here is from Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, of turning the hearts of the fathers back to their children. That's a little bit of a confusing phrase. It could mean three different things, actually. It could mean that the fathers who were disobedient will now actually follow their children in righteousness who are following John's preaching. And so the revival would spread from the children to the fathers. Second, it could also mean that when the people follow in obedience and repentance, the fathers are pleased, meaning the ancestral fathers, those who had faith and were called to believe in Yahweh so long ago. It could also mean that it's just a general outcome of reformation and revival in a family, that reconciliation happens in the family as a result of faith in Christ. Well, the bottom line is John would prepare people for their Messiah, Jesus, and their repentance would be a rekindling of their faith and hope for this Messiah. And the story continues then, starting in verse 18. And Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? 
for I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. So Zechariah raises this objection right away about his age and uh, the impossibility of having a child. And his question here is certainly one of doubt. How can I be sure? Well, an angel of the Lord is standing in the holy place right next to you. I think you can be sure. I mean, that's what he says. That's who I am, you know, I'm standing. So, but notice the contrast then to Mary's simple faith because, again, we bounce between John and Jesus. And so you go to the next storyline, look in verse 29, because she's told similar things. She was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And then you look down to verse 34 and 35. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. So there's a difference between how can I be sure of Zechariah and the how might this actually happen from Mary? Zechariah wants a sign. It's hard to imagine, you know, more of a sign. But the desire of a sign is universally common. And so he's going to get a sign but it's going to be a sign of reprimand. And uh, let's also remember, though, at the t- same time, that you know, he's a very godly person and a pious man. He's a priest, of, I mean, for goodness sake. And yet, even here, he is given to doubt. So we really shouldn't lose respect for Zechariah, but examine our own hearts. Uh, do we always believe the word without question when we first read it in the Bible? I mean, we know we should. And on the whole... Zechariah probably does better than most of us and surpasses us. So when we read the Bible, and we'll be introduced to so many characters in the Gospel of Luke, we need to be careful not to condemn ourselves by judging other people, but rather learn from their experiences and what we read. So the angel identifies himself as Gabriel, who stands in this privileged position of being in the presence of God, And the one who was sent from God to speak to him, notice the words, the good news. See, we're supposed to see that the gospel has just been announced. It begins here. This sign would be that Zechariah would be mute and likely deaf. The word goes on to express that area as well. And later on in verse 62, people have to make signs to him as well. Until the fulfillment of this good news in the birth of John. So this serves to teach him to believe, and it serves to teach us to believe the Word of God also. And it also is a way to keep the prophecy largely hidden until the time it's fulfilled, because he can't tell anybody. But meanwhile, the people outside the temple, they're getting nervous. They're praying and praying and praying, probably running out of things to pray. And they want the priest to do his job. I mean, just come back out, bless us, and get on with the ritual. I mean, that's what he should be doing. But Zechariah finally does emerge, but it's obvious he'd seen a vision by the look on his face and the fact that he couldn't speak. 
Nothing more is said about the people who are left wondering at what God is up to. And then we learn that Zechariah simply fulfills his ministry throughout the week. And surely he's ministering with a newfound joy, glorying in a new strength. Uh, even after his sin of disbelief, well, he believes now. And then Zechariah and Elizabeth, they return to their hill country of Judea where they live. And they go back to their normal life, awaiting God's promise. And we don't know how soon, but Elizabeth becomes pregnant. And we read in verses 24 and 25, after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. And for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. She kept herself in seclusion for five months. We don't really know why. Perhaps it was fear, but more likely it was to offer praise along the lines in verses 25 uh, here. But most likely Zechariah found a way to communicate much of his vision and his message to Elizabeth as well. But perhaps the real reason it turns out to be in the storyline is to reveal it all first to Mary, the mother of our Lord, the mother of the Messiah. Well, we, need to, we see that we need to begin at the beginning, and that is with John the Baptist. I mean, that's really where the whole story of Jesus begins. And this story is, yes, again, one of God's personal care for this godly couple, Zechariah and Elizabeth. And we're encouraged that God always speaks in special ways in our lives for his purposes too. But even more so, this story is about God's plan of redemption that would be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And so the reconsideration of the story of John should lead us to reflect upon the ultimate outcome of the story. The fact that we get to live out a new experience with God as the eventual outcome of the story. Because of Jesus Christ, we are forgiven from our sins. Because of Jesus Christ, we have peace with God. Because of Jesus Christ, we are justified. And we live our lives in great hope of the eternal kingdom with him. It's because of Jesus Christ that we live in full knowledge of the unfolding of the history of redemption and this joy in the Holy Spirit in this new age of salvation. And we know the gifts that God has freely given to us. Luke is correct that our assurance of these things, our conviction over them, they do grow as we observe the plan of God being fulfilled. But Luke has a whole lot more to show us. We will see over and over again in the first few chapters of Luke's gospel account that the greatness of John points to the superiority, the greater greatness of Jesus. And we will come to see again that Christianity is the true religion sent from God as we observe the plan of God being fulfilled. Luke actually will help us speak very well and effectively to our confused world and to proclaim to them the one true hope that there is in Jesus Christ. So make sure you do read the introduction I've supplied for you. Even read the gospel account. I know it's long, but maybe at least read the first section, chapters 1 and 2, over and over. And come prepared on Sundays to revisit these gospel truths and have your faith renewed. I mean, Luke desires for you. God desires for you specifically that you'll have a full assurance of faith and a strong conviction regarding his gospel. That's what the gospel of Luke is for us. God's desire is that you specifically would become a more worshipful and prayerful and missionary person. I mean, who doesn't want that in their life? 
God wants you to be full of the joy of the Holy Spirit in this new age of salvation that's going to the ends of the earth. And our Lord God wants you to be a faithful follower of Jesus. We all want to be more faithful in following Jesus and be a disciple of his. Well, today we probably picked up on a number of quick lessons, though, that are embedded in the storyline, such as learning along with Zacharias to trust God and to believe his word. But the larger burden of Luke here at the very beginning is for us to see that the promise of salvation that God had promised throughout the whole Old Testament is now being fulfilled. The time is here. You know, God, in, God had not spoken for 400 years through a prophet. Malachi was the last. And now he is speaking, and the Messiah will soon show up on the scene. Next Sunday, we'll hear the words of Gabriel to Mary in Luke chapter 131. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Well, it starts then. It continues you know, we look forward to the final day, those of us who believe in the good news. I mean, the eternal Son of God has come down from heaven, and he has taken upon himself flesh, full humanity, and he died upon the cross for our sins to rescue us as his people and to make us members of his kingdom. Jesus inaugurated the kingdom. He came preaching it, and it continues to expand as the gospel is preached. Jesus received his position at the right hand of God after his resurrection, and he's reigning on high over all things for the benefit of his church in the meantime, crushing his enemies. Soon, he'll return and crush them finally in a very dramatic fashion, and Jesus will reign upon the earth, and his kingdom will have no end. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you so much for your holy scripture that we have that it is your word that we can trust as true and communicates to us exactly what you want us to know about yourself, exactly what you want us to understand about your purposes and the unfolding of the history of your salvation. We do pray this morning for ourselves, according to what we read in Luke, that these desires of his as he writes, these desires that you have uh, for us in the scripture, that you would, you would give us a full assurance of faith, stronger conviction, make us more worshipful people, make us more prayerful, more missionary-minded, more full of the joy of the Spirit, just a faithful follower of Jesus Christ our Lord. This is our prayer, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In response to the sermon, um, feel free to either sit or stand, sing or don't sing, just reflect if you want, but we're going to sing. Um, how can I keep from singing? So you guys can sing, I guess, because it's in the title. Um, but it's, it's not one we do all the time, but it's just it's a fun one. It was on the radio a while back. So just in reflection of the sermon, let's sing together.
announcements this morning. I'm going to do them right here just so I don't have to move over there. Um, but hi, I'm Julie Mealy. I'm your interim worship director and here are your morning announcements. Um, Vacation Bible School is coming up and volunteers are needed. I always say third time's the charm. We got it canceled twice in the past two years, but this year it's actually happening. Vacation Bible School, July 13th, 14th, and 15th. It's a little bit different. Um, it's midweek. It's a three-day event and it's 3.15 p.m. to 6.30 p.m. So we still need volunteers, so be praying about it if God is putting it on your heart to be a volunteer for VBS this year, or um, just be praying for VBS that other volunteers would, um, you know, feel that tug and sign up to help. Um, If you um, are interested, if you feel that tug, please contact Linda Justness at lynda at welcometocalvary.com or Thelma Landrude at thelma.landrude at outlook.com for more information to see how you could help. Um, Children's Church and Family Worship Update. We're starting next week. Um, The children will be joining us in the morning for um, family worship, so they'll be here for most of the songs. And families are encouraged to worship together, and then the children will be dismissed for their um, Children's Church program um, before the message actually begins. Um, So that'll be fun. That starts next week, and there'll be an announcement telling you when to send the kids down. It'll probably be from me. 
Um, finally, um, the connection card. Again, I mentioned it earlier. It's in the front of the pews. If you are new or visiting, please fill it out um, and hand it to an usher. Um, and if it is your first time visiting, um, the ushers have a special gift for all the visitors. Um, if you're watching online, there's the connection card online as well. Just fill it out there. You'll hear from us. Um, any uh, comments, questions, or prayer requests are welcome. And if you were touched by the sermon today, if anything really stuck out to you, if you um, have a prayer request, if you want to be baptized or something, 